All right. I don't want to break this, so I have to be very gentle. We're going uh, to start with singing. We haven't done this the last couple of weeks, but if you have that, um, that handout, it's hymn number 798, The God of Abram Praise. We're going to sing verse 1 and then verse 4, because today we're going to talk about covenants and oaths. 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 However you pronounce it, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to sing verse 1, and then we're going to sing verse 4, all right? The God of Abram praise, who reigns enthroned above, ancient of everlasting days, and God of love. Jehovah, great I am, by earth and heaven adored. I bow and bless the sacred name forever blessed. He by himself has sworn, I on his oath depend. I shall on eagle's wings upborn to heaven ascend. I shall behold his face, I shall hear his power adore, and sing the wonders of his grace forevermore. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written down for our learning. Grant now that we may so read, mark, and inwardly digest your word, that being strengthened by it, we may endure to everlasting life. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Genesis 15. And uh, last week we talked about constellations and all sorts of things uh, related to what Abraham saw when he looked up at the stars. Um, And this week now we're going to move on from stars. Your seed will be like the stars. We're going to move on to um, the next uh, part of chapter 15, which is God making a covenant with Abraham. Okay, And just by a little way of quick review here, remember um, last week I told you that God's mode of operation, his kind of habit of dealing with us, is he likes to do two things. He likes to give a word and a sign. Word and sign. And we can see that in our worship service. What do we call the first part of the service? The service of the word. You have the, the, um, so, the psalm from the introit. Then you have Old Testament, epistle, gospel, the sermon. This is all the service of the word. Um, But then, we're not content, we don't just get kicked out and said, all right, you've heard it all again. What's the second half of the service? The sacrament. And even though, you know, in terms of time, it takes up a much uh, shorter time, those two are on par with each other. Which is more important, the word or the sacrament? Yeah, both, right? Both. This is one of the blessings of weekly communion. You always get both. You get the full, uh, the full shooting match. Everything. Jesus doesn't just give us half of his normal um, blessing, but he gives us the full thing. And you see that throughout the Bible. This is one of those, uh, what we might call, structural 
elements of the Bible. It's like underneath the iceberg. So time after time after time, God gives the word and accompanies it with the sign. Okay? Now, we said last week we could see part of that word at the beginning of chapter 15. The promise is given to Abraham here, or Abram, excuse me. Verse, look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? The word of the Lord came to Abram. It's almost like this word, you know, when we hear word, we think of like Abram heard a voice in his head. But here it sounds like the word of the Lord is almost like this, some kind of visual thing. The word of the Lord came and spoke. Now, when you hear the word of the Lord, what do you think of? Where do we have the word of the Lord? The Bible, Bible, okay? So you could think of the Bible showing up with hands and feet (laughs) to Abram and opening its mouth. This would be like a cartoon, right? And uh, a Bible, a book spoke to Abram. But before the word of the Lord was written down, What's a, who else is called the word of the Lord in the Bible? Jesus. Jesus. What's the most famous passage about the word? John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And we read this every Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see here already in Genesis 15, um, this comes up quite often in the Old Testament, these little hints of the Trinity. Now, he doesn't show up and say, Abram, I am the eternal son of the eternal father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father. He doesn't introduce himself that way. But you can see already here, this is the, this is the seed that will develop into our full confession of the Trinity. It takes time for us to figure out what all is in here. But I just want you to see that already. So the word, yes? So... This was the, I would say it this way, this is not a speaking book. That was the, that was the goofy one for the kids. This is um, the Son of God before he is incarnate. In the Old Testament, you have a couple of these, these terms. The word of the Lord is one of the most common, probably the most common. It's like everywhere in the prophets. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to me, said Jeremiah. The word of the Lord. It's like this, this title, right? This person came to me. And he's never really described. He just, he's always coming and talking to the prophets, okay? So the word of the Lord is one of these. The other one that's very common is the angel of the Lord, This one gets confusing because when we think of angels, what do we think of? Wings, and they have wings, right? They're really powerful wings, though. They're not cute little babies, right? They're pretty terrifying beings. But we think of created beings, right? The created angels, the cherubim, the seraphim. What else does the Bible call them? Archangels, right? Michael gets called an archangel. We think of all the the created angels. Beings, And so when we hear the angel of the Lord, our mind just automatically classifies that as, oh, this is one of God's heavenly messengers. Angel means messenger. But something strange always happens or almost always happens with the angel of the Lord. Look in Exodus. This is maybe the 
um, best place to see this. Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord is in the burning bush. Look at Exodus 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Who's him? Moses. Not Noah, Moses. Right? That's always the good joke to to use. How many animals did Moses take in the ark? None. It was Noah, right? You just make sure your kids are paying attention. Um, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Okay? He looked and behold, bush burning, wasn't consumed, no big deal. Um, or maybe it is a big deal. Now, skip down to verse... Um, look at verse 6. So Moses takes his shoes off first. He's on holy ground. And who will read verse 6 for us? Go for it, Sam. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Okay, who is saying that? The burning bush is. And who is in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. But now he's either impersonating God, which is a no-no, right? If you're not God, you don't get to say, I am the Lord. Right? God is very jealous for his name. So he's either uh, a really bad angel who's taking liberties and saying, I am, the, I am God. Or, what's the other answer to this? He is God. How can he be God but not God at the same time? How can God also be an angel? This is uh, what perplexes people about God. He's bigger than our minds can wrap around, Right? Um, This is why when we say the Athanasian Creed, we all throw our hands up and say, I don't know what in the world we're saying, right? Um, And yet there are not three almighties. There is one almighty, but he's also three at the same time. This is is where it comes from, right? This is the biblical um, instances where you have someone coming from God who is at the same time identified with God. He is both the angel and God. Okay? Now, go back to Genesis 15, because if I go too far down that path, it wouldn't be bad for us to do. But I just wanted to mention that to you. Okay? We want to stick with Abram. And I'm going to close our door here. Hey, keep it down, would you? I think I scared him. It'll, it'll last for two minutes, and then they'll forget. Um, okay, uh, Genesis 15, the promise, right? The word before the sign. Genesis 15, here's the promise, verse 5. This man, Eleazar, this servant, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look, in, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay, so what's the word all about here? Offspring, right? We've got these, these terms are all synonymous. Offspring or seed, and he will be the heir, okay? So Abraham is very concerned, not just with himself, but with the future, right? He knows, and in some way, he must know here 
the promises that God gave me are not, I'm not going to see the total fulfillment of these things. I will make you into a great nation. I'm not going to see that because I'm already an old man, right? My time is running short. So I need an heir. Somebody has to inherit this promise. Somebody has to carry it out. It has to happen after my lifetime. So he's looking ahead. And the promise comes um, to him here. But now we're going to see the sign. Okay, so word and sign. What does God always like to do? Word and sign. sign. We got to get this down. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. Um, But let's get the the full story here. Who will read for us um, the whole thing, 7 through 20? You do have a few of these stalactites and stalagmites. Jason, go for it. See what I mean? Stalactites and stalagmites, right? Um, and uh, just so you can practice your pronunciation, Jason, it's always eem. When you're reading something Hebrew, so cherubim, seraphim, rephaim. But y- you should consider being a pastor with that voice. You really should. Um, okay, so here's what we've got. We've got uh, the Lord now doing something with Abram. Right? He's already taken him outside. Right? He's already shown him something. But now we're going to see some more action. Right? There's a, a bit of a ritual that the Lord wants to lead Abram through. And I think it's interesting uh, to notice here. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 15. All of this happened in a vision. The Old Testament is always happening in visions. People are having dreams and visions, and I shouldn't say always because there's plenty of things. Come on in. You want a Bible here? We're in Genesis. Uh, we're, we're from Missouri. Great. I don't know if you got my email or not. I did not, but come on in. Join us here. We'll talk afterwards. Let's make some room for our guests here. Um, Ma- third one coming in. Okay, you got three people. How about right there next to Max? We've got a couple seats. Oh, 9.30. 9.30. On the nose. 
Yeah, well, welcome. We, we, won't, uh, we won't ask you to introduce yourself yet. Uh, we, we won't embarrass you any more than we have to, okay? But just grab a seat here. You can go right down there with him. Um, we're in Genesis 15, and I was just saying something deeply profound and insightful, and I can't remember. Oh, visions! Visions! So in the Old Testament, there is often visions, right? There's visions and dreams. And the thing I want to show you here, uh, chapter 15 starts with a vision, and then when does the vision end? It seems like after verse 6 would be a time for, you know, God to snap his fingers and Abram, ooh, holy smokes, what a vision, right? Um, You'd think that he would come out of the vision, but instead, look down at verse 12, We never get a a note that the vision actually ended. So verse 12 says, as the sun was going down, not only did he have another vision, but he had a vision inside of a vision. It's like a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. There was a movie about this. What was that movie? Had Leonardo DiCaprio. Inception. Inception. Yeah. Did anybody see Inception? Inception is great. Um, you, should, you should all go home and watch Inception, because that, then you'll understand the Bible. <laughs> but in, the, in that movie, I just want to talk about that movie for a minute. It's great because these, uh, it's like in the future, I won't give away the end, but there's, they've figured out some way to go into your dreams, and they can plant a thought in your mind so that when you wake up, you act on your dream. But of course, what happens when you wake up from a dream? You forget it, right? Um, and the whole, the whole kind of premise of this movie is that if you can control someone's dreams, you can control their action. And it's really neat because they've, not only can you go into the dream, but then you can go to the next layer, which is you can give someone a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. And one of the neat things about that movie is at the end, you're not sure if you're in the real world or in dream world anymore. Um, so you've got to watch Inception, okay? Now, it, so all I'm pointing out to you here is this mention of a vision passing into something more. And notice the way that his, the second half here is described in verse 12. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And what else? Behold, dreadful and great darkness. So this is like super sleep. Um, what do they call that when you get in? What's the good sleep you want to have? REM. REM, rapid eye movement, right? This is like uber REM sleep, okay? And uh, we've, this happens a couple of times in the Bible, maybe most famously. Who slept uh, in the Bible? Who slept the hardest? Who was the hardest sleeper? Jacob had a, a deep sleep, right? Remember, God appeared to him in the dream with the ladder going up into heaven. Who else? Noah. Noah had a good sleep, right? After he, it was wine induced, um, but he had a good sleep. Yes. Who, oh, it was a great sleep. That's the. You need to have a nightcap. You. I thought you were a Missouri Synod. Adam had a deep sleep. Go to Genesis two. Adam had the deepest sleep of all. Well, 
Yes, he did. Well, Abram had a pretty sweet dream. If I could have this dream, I'd have it every night if I could. Um, the, well, both. Uh, go, to, go to Genesis 2. We'll get Adam's, Adam's dream first, his sleep. Um, look in chapter 2. Where does it say the Lord put him to sleep? 21, thank you. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And how do you know it was a good deep sleep? What happened to him? He had his rib ripped out, and that didn't even wake him up, right? Now, I know that anesthesia is heavy um, and can induce a lot of sleep in a person, but if, if this was just regular old sleep, right, when somebody pinches you, you wake up, right? When your wife kicks you in your sleep, you wake up. So if God rips out your rib while you're sleeping and you don't wake up, that's a pretty good hint that this is uber REM sleep. And I just want you to see this, um, this kind of sleep. There's a special word for it in Hebrew um, that it's, it's different than regular sleep. God puts him way in the deep, deep sleep. Okay? And just like he did that for Adam and brought Eve out, now, there's got to be, there must be some overlap. I don't know exactly what the connection is, other than when really important stuff happens, this is how God likes to do it. This is critical stuff. Just like it was critical for Adam um, to have his rib built up into a woman. So flip back to chapter 15, now that we know about this dreadful, deep darkness of a sleep. Yes, sir. Oh, did he? I did not know that. Yeah. Well, yeah, same idea, right? They were, they were copying Noah. They said, well, maybe if we give you enough whiskey, um, you won't feel this. You'll fall asleep and you won't feel it. Um, I did not know that, that he took Genesis 2 as his um, interesting. Okay, uh, chapter 15. So what does God do with Abram in this dream? He kind of leads him around, and he has him do some kind of strange stuff, doesn't he? So I wrote on the board here, here's what Abram had to do. He had to round up some animals. He needed a heifer. What's a heifer? Female cow. A female goat. A ram. What's the difference between a female goat and a ram? Yeah, I think a male might be, one of these is, could be a sheep. One of them could be a sheep, and like a goat, obviously, is a goat, but the ram might have been a sheep. It's not critical. It's just interesting to kind of figure this out. Come on in. Your folks, I think, are sitting right here. And then he gets these, um, these birds, right? A turtle dove and a pigeon. There's Bibles right here, and you just find, a, find an open seat. We're all, we're, it's like at my... At my house, um, the girls, the boys would never do this, the girls always fight about who gets to sit where. And I have to constantly say, we're all sitting together, okay? Don't worry, we're all sitting together. It's one big table. Um, in any case, we've got all these animals. And what does Abram have to do with them? Look at verse 10. 
cut them in half. So this is uh, a dreadful kind of a dream. Cut the animals up, chop them in half, and what do you do with the parts? Put half of them over here and half of them over here. You get the picture in your mind? You've got, now, he, I don't know if this means, you know, actually like saw them right down the middle. Probably not. I don't think he had like a, that big of a saw. But it means cut up all the meat and take it and put some of it here and some of it here. Some of it here, some of it here. Um, if, you, if you think about the parallels with the sacrifices later on, um, in the book of Leviticus, you get a description of what you do with all the different parts of the animal. And some of the meat goes onto the altar or into the altar. Some of the stuff, the unclean parts, you take outside of the camp. The skin, um, I'm sure the hooves, some of it gets discarded outside the camp. Um, but in any case, you get the picture. We don't have to have all the details here. You got half the animal here, half the animal here. Yes. Maybe, yeah. Maybe in his dream, all of a sudden, his hand became a sword, and he just went, whoosh, right? Dreams are cool that way. Um, it, it doesn't tell us what he used. Um, but then he does something kind of odd, doesn't he? Look at what it says in verse 11. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, what did Abram have to do? Drive them away. So these birds of prey... Abram's, God doesn't just say, okay, you finished that part. Now we're going to move to the next part of the dream. There's, this t there's some time elapsing in the dream. And one of his jobs is to chase away the birds. Now let's, let's do kind of like we did with the dream sleep. Let your mind kind of go through your Bible stories that you know. Can you think of other Bible stories with birds eating things up? When else do we know of birds eating things in the Bible, and what does it mean? Sam? The dream with Joseph and the... Okay, there we go. Go to Genesis. It's like you read my mind, man. Who's your father? Um, go to Genesis uh, chapter. This is Joseph in prison. Oh, uh, before he gets elevated to Pharaoh's right-hand man in chapter 40. Yes, thank you. Genesis chapter 40. Joseph's down in prison because Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accuses him, right? And he, Potiphar can't, you know, it's, it's always a question whether Potiphar believed his wife or he just knew there's no point in going against her. Um, because my life would be miserable then, right? If you're, if you're the judge and your wife brings charges, guess who you have to rule in favor of? Your wife, right? Um, ju justice may be blind, but um, not that blind. So in any case, Joseph ends up in prison, and if you look down at verse... Where is it? Where is it? Yes, look at verse... 16, the baker and the cupbearer, the guy who's in charge of Pharaoh's cup, probably a pretty high position, by the way, in, Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's court. Um, maybe, possibly, Joseph's right, or Pharaoh's right-hand man is his cupbearer. Um, Joseph, later in the story, has something to do with a 
holding Pharaoh's cup. But we want to talk about the baker. Uh, who will read the, the dream of the baker in verse 16? Go ahead, Mike. Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't. That's the interpretation. We want the actual dream. Where is it? Five, thank you. Sorry. Go there. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go down to 16. That, we don't want to hear about the cupbearer. He's the guy who has the good dream. We want to hear about the nightmare. Verse 16. Birds, birds of prey are nightmares. So keep, keep going. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, well, while you're giving out good uh, interpretations, here's my dream. <laughs> Maybe you'll give me a good one, too. Okay, so good interpretation or bad? This is bad, right? And you, 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 you knew that even before uh, he finished the dream. You, you could have figured that one out. Um, but Joseph tells him, yeah, the birds are going to pluck out your, your eyeballs, right? And that's kind of a, a universal thing. If the birds are coming down and eating you up, that's not good. Um, the birds are a sign here of curse, um, there, are, there is another place that's, that's helpful to see this. When Noah uh, comes out of the ark, you know, after the rain is over, what kind of bird does he send out first? Raven. And what does the raven do? It goes to and fro on the face of the waters. What's it doing? Say it louder, Max. Scavenging. Remember, there were a lot of dead bodies. And what do dead bodies do? They float, and ravens like to eat them. So being picked clean by the animals, is that's like you've, you've been judged all the way. Right? You've been completely judged here. So Abram has to drive away the birds of prey. He has to drive away the curse, um, because that's not the point of this dream. This is not the kind of nightmare where God is going to say, I'm going to come and curse you. This is, this is a good dream. God's going to come and bless. And if you look down in verse 13, then, we get the point. Here's the interpretation of all this ritual. Um, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, certainly, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Okay, so what is God telling him in this dream? 
Not only are you going to have an heir, I've already promised you that, but he's telling them what's going to happen to his offspring. And what is he describing there? Yeah, this is the time uh, between Joseph and Moses. Right? Remember at first when the Israelites go down into Egypt, Joseph takes care of them. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Beautiful what he says to his brothers. But um, eventually, a pharaoh arises who forgets Joseph, and he makes life miserable for the, the children of Israel. Okay, so God is telling Abraham this before it happens. He's, he's prophesying to Abraham. I think it's important to see here um, what he says in verse 13, know this for certain. Okay, now when God tells you something, it's pretty certain, right? He never kind of makes half-hearted promises. He never says things kind of offhand. He's pretty trustworthy, we would say, right? Um, but there's something about this here where God wants Abraham, um, this is like more sure and certain um, than all of my other promises, okay? When we do this, what are the different ways that you can promise someone something? Okay, you can take an oath. I, I spoiled it because I had us sing that. We should never have sung that hymn because um, you know the good word. Um, but think of, that's like the ultimate, right? I'm going to take an oath. Think of the, the lesser kinds of promises you can make a person. Pinky swear. What else? Handshake. What else? Blood, blood brothers, right? A blood oath. That's kind of the point here, right, actually. Um, what, are, what are some other, pro and when would you make those kinds of promises? Pinky promise is like, you know, um, yeah, right, like, you know, you tell your friend, like, the girl who you like, and he pinky promise, I promise, I won't tell anybody, and as soon as you tell him, then he goes and runs and tells, you know, the girl, oh, did you know David likes you, right? Everything's ruined, right? Your whole childhood is ruined by that. But those are for little things, kind of indifferent matters. When do you make a contract with somebody? Oh, you're, so marriage is a contract. That's true. There is a contract there. But um, I was thinking less than marriage. <laughs> a business deal, right? And especially a business deal where you're not quite sure if you can trust the guy. Right? So somebody shows up at your house and tells you, hey, we were in the neighborhood, we were cutting down trees, don't worry, we're fully bonded, fully insured. I noticed in your backyard that tree needs to be cut down. Um, I know, my, I know, my, my, um, you know my, my truck here, the window's all broken out. This happened to me, by the way. But, um, but you can trust me, right? You, I'll take that tree down, and if any damage happens to your house... I'll pay for it, right? You can bet that I'm going to tell that guy, okay, thanks for telling me, but let's put it down in writing, okay? So the more important something is, the more we want it set down in writing. And you jumped the gun, Jason, but what's the biggest promise that you make in this life? The marriage vow, right? All the other ones, you know, it's fine to just write your name on the line, but when you make the marriage vow, you've got to put your name on the paper. That's significant. But you also stand before God and the congregation and you say, 
I will. I do. Till death parts us. Right? And you're fully committed. Now, just imagine, we're going to pick on Colleen and Todd here. Just imagine that Todd came to Colleen and he told her, you know, Colleen, my love for you is stronger than any other love. It's different. We're not like other couples. We love each other so much. We don't need. We, well, I know. You've told me this. Right? And Todd is pouring out his love. He writes all kinds of poetry. And Colleen is just overwhelmed by this. And then finally, Todd says, but you know what, hon? Because we're different than everybody else, we don't, need, we don't need the paper. We don't need the contract. Our love is better than that. Colleen is going to say, See ya. <laughs> if you're not willing to put your name down there, I'm not sure you actually mean it, right? Um, if he's not going if, if to say, you have access to my finances, then something, he's holding back on me. And it makes you start to wonder, does he really mean all this poetry? Or is he just, you know, that kind of a guy, right? So the, the contract is important in marriage. The, co- the covenant uh, demands it. Um, and in the same way here, God is not satisfied to simply say to Abraham, I'm going to take care of you. I'll be your God. He's already done that, right? He's already given him the verbal promise. He's already told him, and God never lies. But something about this, God feels that this is significant enough of a matter to, you know, put his name on the paper. And here's how he does it. He doesn't write out a contract, okay? Here's how he does it. Look at verse uh, 17. So Abram's been fending off the birds all day long. He's probably tired of doing that. And now the sun goes down. So he's in this deep, dark dream. And now he goes also into the deep, dark night. A lot of darkness going on here. But when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this Land. Now, if you haven't been with us, um, you're going to hear it now. Um, if you have been with, uh, with us, this is a good chance to remind ourselves, what are the two things that God is always talking about with Abraham? Land and offspring. Land and offspring. Land and offspring. I will show you a land. I will make you a great nation. In you and in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. So now it comes together, land and offspring, and God says something about this ritual with this fire going through the pieces is the covenantal oath, the covenantal promise. How does this make sense? What do we make of all this? What's with the the torch going through the pieces? Okay, maybe. Let's just spit out whatever you think. That's, a, that's an idea. I'm not going to say whether it's the right idea or not. What else? It burns up the pieces. What else, Jameson? Uh, the fire represents God, and he's okay. saying that if he breaks his oath, he's going to die. Have you, how did you figure that out? He's right, okay? I told you I wasn't going to do that, but he's, that was so good. Um, remember what he's talking about. Let's see if we can, can think. Um, 
God just has gotten done saying, your offspring are going to be down in Egypt, they're going to suffer, but I'm going to bring them out. Now, in that story of the Exodus, we have to know a little bit of the future here, but you know what happens there. Is there anything where fire passes through something? Where is that? Adam? The Red Sea, the fire of the Lord, the fire by day, or the, the cloud by day, the fire by night, passes through the Red Sea, just like this fire pot passes through the animals, right? This flaming torch. And I think that uh, Jameson is right on here to see this fiery thing, whatever it is. How is it described there? Um, a fire pot. What is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch? I don't know what exactly he's seeing there, but it's something fiery and smoky. Just like the glory cloud was fiery and smoky and cloudy that led the people in the wilderness. And that fire was whose visible presence? It was God, right? When you see the fire in the cloud, you'll know that I am with you. When the fire goes, you follow. When the cloud goes, you follow. When the fire stops, you stop. When the cloud stops, you stop, right? That's how God's glory appeared in the Exodus. And Abraham is seeing all of this, and in his mind, in his sleep, he's supposed to draw the connection, this is God. Now, are there any passages in the Bible that connect that even more solidly for us? God and fire. There's the burning bush, which we just looked at. Nebuchadnezzar. Well, yeah, there's the three men in the fiery furnace, and that fire is not hot enough to, to scorch them because the Lord is even hotter and he surrounds them. Okay, you get some fire, you get the fire balls coming down from heaven. So you get the idea, wow, whatever's up there must be, there must be lots of fire. Okay? Yes? Pentecost. Pentecost. There's all kinds of fire stories, aren't there? When the Holy Spirit comes up, he's fiery. Go to Hebrews. You guys are thinking of the stories, which is good. But um, let's get it in uh, just a statement. Hebrews chapter 12 Yes. Yeah, that's what Mrs. Bass was saying. Right on. Hebrews 12. If you're not a pyromaniac yet, um, this will make you. Hebrews 12. Hebrews is near the end. It's on, well, we have different Bibles, so I can't give you a page number. And now that I'm here, I don't see it. Yeah. Thank you. Now, yeah, Ben read my mind. Who's your dad? He must be good. Um, <laughs> Hebrews 12, 29. Look what it says there. And we should go back to verse 28 uh, because you don't want to just start in the middle of a sentence. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
Now, we know that the Father does not have a body. So this is not a reference to what God is made up of. God is spirit. He does not have a physical body, the Father. The Son has taken on flesh, but the Father and the Spirit are not physical beings. So how is God like a consuming fire? What does fire do? It destroys things, right? It consumes them. And that's part of the point here in Hebrews. It burns stuff up. And God certainly burns up the wicked, okay? Wicked things can't stand in his presence, okay? But what else does fire do? It doesn't just torch things. It purifies things. It, it is transformative, to use a nice big word. God is transformative. He doesn't ever leave things as they are. He doesn't do status quo stuff. He is always changing. He is always transforming. He is always bringing you through some trial from glory to glory. He's refining you in the furnace so that you may be pure, that you may come out more pure, more glorious, all right? And uh, that's just an aside. I just like to think about fire for a little while here this morning. This is one of the reasons why we have fire in the church, right? Um, do, those, do those candles really, uh, do we need them? Are we commanded to have candles? Is that the 11th commandment? In the temple, there were candles. In the, there were in the temple. They were commanded. But Jesus never told his disciples, now, when you get together for church, you have to make sure if you're having the Lord's Supper, you have to have two candles on the altar. If you don't, it doesn't work. And if the acolytes light them in the wrong order, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy you. Right? That was, there's no command like that. But we keep these things. In our, we are free to use fire. And I think the more the better. <laughs> yes? Torches. Maybe. Yeah. I'll talk about it with the altar guild and we'll, we'll look for some, okay? But this, that the fire conveys in symbol what is true, right? The fire conveys the symbol. And God already shows that to Abraham here in chapter 15 of Genesis. Now, um, Jameson also said something critical here. What, why does the fire have to pass through the middle of the animal meat, the carcasses. And for that, we have to understand a little bit of something about um, the way you make a covenant. Right? So I think it's important to see God did not wait to do this until they had you know, modern day business contracts. It's a similar idea to making a contract, but this is way more powerful. Because when I make a contract with you, if I break that contract, what can you do to me? Sue you. you can sue me. What can't you do to me? Kill you. you can't kill me, right? You might, make, you might take everything away from me, but you can't take away my life. The idea of a covenant, it, it, the, tr the translation says he made a covenant, but the Hebrew is more literal. He cut the covenant. The covenant is cut. And the idea here is, you know, if we're making some kind of an agreement, let's say Ben and I say, all right, uh, Jameson is going to marry Margaret, and we're both going to pass through this animal we just chopped up, and if you go back on it, you're going to become like the animals. And if I go back on it, 
you can hack me into pieces. Okay, so you put your life on the line. That's the idea of cutting the covenant. And this is what's so significant about this chapter is that God actually says, I'm going to make you this promise about the land and the seed. And then instead of both of us going through, which would be expected, who's the only one that goes through the middle of the animals? God. He's saying, this, is, this one's on me, Abraham, and it's all on me. And if I fail in this, you can cut me into pieces, which is, of course, impossible. And that's the whole point. It's not going to happen. But God uh, makes this promise. He makes this covenant. Now, why? How much time do we have? Perfect. 12 minutes. This is great. Um, Sometimes I plan these things out and it doesn't go at all according to plan, but we've got plenty of time here. Why does God do this? Why not just be satisfied with giving Abraham the verbal promise? The pinky, or why not just make a pinky promise? <laughs> why go to this extreme length of saying, if I fail, you can chop me into pieces? Okay, one reason is this is critical. This is really important. Because God doesn't have a pinky. Right, so he can't make a pinky promise. <laughs> okay, very good. He said, because God doesn't have a pinky. I asked, why didn't he make a pinky promise? And, you know, literal minds. That's good. Um, now, from Abraham's perspective, why is this important for Abraham? Okay, so why would, why would Abraham need that? Yeah, so we call this um, divine accommodation. Is that how you spell that word? I meant to do that. That was a cursive O. Divine accommodation, right? God condescends to Abraham. We could say this. This is one way to answer the question, and it's right. God condescends to Abram. He comes down to Abram's level and he says, look, Abram, I never lie. So my verbal promise is as good as my pinky promise is as good as my covenantal oath. My covenantal vow is as good as me walking through these pieces. But you don't get that, Abraham, because that's not the way men make deals with each other. Men have these grades of how much you can trust them. And so I'm going to accommodate Abraham's weakness. I'm going, going to accommodate humankind's weakness. And I'm going to enter into this covenant as an accommodation. Okay? So out of Abraham's weakness. Now think, think of that with how Jesus deals with us. Right? Remember we said God's mode of operation is twofold. Word and sign. Word and sacrament. Okay, so if we translated this into the New Testament, we could ask the same question. Why did Jesus give us the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the gospel? Uh, maybe you've asked it this way before. This is the way the confirmation kids ask it. Well, pastor, we get the forgiveness of sins at the beginning of the service. We get the forgiveness of sins when we hear the gospel. Why do we need the forgiveness of sins again in the Lord's Supper? And the answer is, at least in part, because you're weak, 
right? And when you're weak, you need all the help you can get. So God accommodates weak, the weakness of our faith, and he says, I'm going to give you a verbal promise. I'm going to give you a preached word. I'm going to give you baptism. I'm going to give you the Lord's Supper, right? I'm going to give you all this stuff because you're weak and you need it, okay? That's half of the answer. Yes? Yeah, sure. Yes, yes. And what I'm, so it's partly out of weakness, but what you're starting to lead us down the path is God wants to do this. He doesn't just do this. He doesn't do word and sign simply because man is weak. He, right, this is like, <laughs> well, I shouldn't use that example, so I won't. Um, but he doesn't do it just as an accommodation. He does it because of who he is, right? So there is a, um, a place in the Bible that says everything must be established by two or three witnesses. And that is a reflection of how God likes to do things. God likes to repeat himself. He likes to triply repeat himself. He is triple in himself. There's something Trinitarian about this. And so part of the, the other half of it is God does this for Abraham out of a fullness. Sorry. Hello, Pastor. What? You didn't give me any candy? Good morning. God does this for Abraham out of an overabundance. He overflows out of love, right? So um, here's the example I was going to give you a minute ago. The, uh, a wife could say to her husband, dear, do you still love me? And the husband could say, well, honey, right? The old joke is, um, I told you the day we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let you know, right? <laughs> I made the promise. I told you, um, you know, but... Husbands accommodate their wives' weaknesses and say to them over and over again, yes, dear, I love you. No, that doesn't make you look fat. You look beautiful, right? Okay? But that's not the only reason that we, we tell our wives that we love them, is it? Right, Phil? If that's the only reason, if it's only because she's weak and needs to hear it, something's wrong, right? The point is that the love of the husband overflows and he can't help himself. And I think this is uh, helpful for us to see. God doesn't just accommodate our weakness by giving us word and sign, but he overflows. He can't help himself, right? Um, this is why we have the Lord's Supper every week. It's not just because we're weak and we need it every week. It's because Jesus wants you to have his body and blood repeatedly. He wants it to be regular, common, doesn't want it to be no big deal. That's what people are always afraid of. If we have communion too much, you know, you have too much of a good thing. If my husband tells me he loves me too much, I might not believe him anymore, right? That doesn't, that's not how it works. Um, look in Luke 22. This is one of my favorite passages for teaching about the Lord's Supper from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective. Luke 22, verse 15. 
will, who will read us? This is, this is just beautiful. Jameson, you've got to read it loud. 20, Luke 22, verse 15. I have earnestly desired, okay, that's the translation, epithumia epithumesa, it, that's the Greek word for passionately wanting a thing, right, I don't just, this isn't just like my preference, but this is, I am compelled to this, with, a, with great desire I have desired to eat this meal with you. This is Jesus's perspective on Holy Communion. It isn't just like, well, I guess we're supposed to do this. Right? I have earnestly desired to eat with you. That was true of the first Passover, and we should, you know, we should emblazon those words on our altar or something so that we always remember God wants this, both to accommodate our weakness, but also out of the overabundance, the overflow of his love. He wants to have communion with his people. And you can see that the hint of that or the beginning of that all the way back in Genesis 15. Okay? So God swears to Abraham, he makes an oath to Abraham, and the way we talk about that is he cuts the covenant with Abraham. And from now on, from Genesis 15 on, if there's any doubt in Abraham's mind about, you know, God made me a promise about land and seed, he can remember, well, he cut it in those animals. And if God means business about this, I can, I can believe him, right? I can, I can trust him. If he fails, he'll die, right? He'll be, he'll be ripped in two. Okay, other, any questions here on Genesis 15 or, or other things? Yes? Yeah. What did Abraham have to do? Drive away the animals or the birds, but even that is uh, a very minor thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He he used the word unilateral, right? This is what we mean by grace. By grace, God takes the initiative. God takes it on Himself, um, and you can see that in Jesus too, right? The fulfillment of this comes in the cross. Jesus puts Himself on the line. Um, he He's willing to go to death. And through death to bring about, you know, the fullness of the blessing of Abraham. Okay? So great stuff here. Genesis 15, that's one of those chapters in the Bible that's good just to have. Um, you could go back over it. I'm sure there's much more we could say. Um, but for our time, we're going to move on. Chapter 16. Next week, we'll talk about Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word and your signs, uh, which are effective and accomplish uh, the very things that they signify. We pray that you would uh, magnify your word in our hearts, that you would magnify your sacraments in our midst, um, so that we may rejoice in them, we may receive them, uh, and live out our days in peace uh, and in the confidence that they give us. Bless us now as we go to church or as we go to our homes. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Yes, sir.